You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse and I'm your host and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very, very happy to be here. Happy to, uh, as am I. Now, did you have a nice long weekend? Yes, it was uh, very restful and I guess that's why I'm a bit perky at the moment. Oh, good for you. <laughs> but uh, I did spend some more time in the kitchen. Alex. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. Awesome. I prepared um, some pork chops, some great, great mashed potatoes, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was just, it was just uh, basically mashing and the uh, butter, which helped along. But I also had a bit of, um, bit of fun with the pork chop, for sure. Bit Good of pe- for you. Pepper, salt, and it was tasty. Good for you. That's great. It's uh, you've come a long way in the kitchen. It's it's good to see. Very good inspiration for people who are listening to the show. Yeah, you know what? Actually, we didn't have a car available, so we took uh, advantage of having our groceries delivered to us. This is the first time that we've done that. The grocery items that made it to our door were actually quite great in terms of the quality. And so that's just kind of made me think beyond a little bit in terms of having the groceries delivered. It's so much it's so much of a time saver. It is a time saver, and as long as you've got a great service, it uh, it can really help out, and it's it's well worth it. Well worth it. We get our vegetables delivered every week, which is a help. It covers most of the week. I do have to fulfill other areas, but uh, we do get ours delivered. Ours is an organic delivery, so I do I do appreciate that as well. And today is back to school day for lots and lots of kids. So. Uh, at the Health Hub, we wish you all a very, very good 2018-19 uh, school year, and uh, God bless the teachers. Let me tell you, they uh, they really do a wonderful job, and we're fortunate to have them. So good luck to all of our back-to-school kids. So today's show is live. You can reach us at 416-245-1534. I had to double check that again. It seems like I've said, haven't said that in a while. And uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. If you have any questions after the show, if you want any shows, uh, topics, let us know. And uh, we will be happy, happy to return your emails and uh, get on to some new topics. So our podcast from last week, Cultivating Mindfulness Through Running with William Poulin is up. There was a little glitch in um, one of the the links, but that's been corrected. So that is up. Uh, That was a very interesting show. So please do take a listen. You can subscribe to our podcast, The Health Hub, on iTunes and SoundCloud, any of your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find them on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find them on my website, kathybiasse.com. 
So um, lots of ways to listen to some awesome, awesome guests. And we just, uh, we are humbled and continue to um, be very, very grateful for all the great guests that uh, come on to our show and uh, grace us with all their, their information. So I was with my daughter, Madeline, in the car. Um, I'm not even sure how we got onto the topic, but maybe because I was getting a little weepy because I had to take her back to school, <laughs> uh, back to university. And um, I tend to cry a bit. Anyways, I don't know why things just get to me, but I do cry a, a little bit. And she, she came out with this question. She says, why do we cry? And um, I thought, hmm, that's a, that's a very good question. You know, we have, um, we have physiological tears, but why do we cry as an emotional response? And um, it was very, very interesting. So I did a little digging, and it's, it's uh, something that I thought I would share with you. So crying is a natural response for humans to emotions, but it's also a physiological response to irritants like dust in your eyes. And humans produce three types of tears. Basal tears, these are tear duct tears that are constantly secreted. Um, they are protein-rich antibacterial liquid that help to keep our eyes moist. And, and every time you blink, that's, that's the liquid that's in the eye. That's what the, mm-hmm. the, the liquid does. And that type of tear, or um, I guess you would call it, I don't know what else to call it other than a tear. The second is a reflex tear, and that's triggered by irritants. You know, if you get something in your eye or you're, you're cutting onions, and that type of, of tear is solely meant to flush out that irritant and uh, obviously uh, has a very important, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very important. We'll leave it at that. And then the third is the emotional tear, and humans shed tears in response to a range of motions. And... Um, I, you know, I could, I almost got around to this answer as we were talking in the car. I thought, well, there's got to be something in those tears, like the reason why we cry those tears. And in fact, there are the tears that we cry in response to emotion contain a much higher level of stress hormones than the other types of tears. Um, and when we're talking about people yeah. crying, it's usually in response to some emotion, right. whether it be a happy or sad happy one. Happy or sad, right. And, and these tears physiologically perform the function of excreting some of these hormones and, and they, they help to relieve pain. Um, research has found that in, in addition to being soothing the oxytocin and endorphins, these chemicals, these feel good chemicals actually help us to feel better and to relieve some pain. Um, the tears help us to manage stress yeah, so, it is said to, it's better, obviously, to let your emotions out. There's a lot of times that um, we don't let ourselves cry just because maybe we're out in public or, or we've got too many things going on. But sometimes it is just a good idea just to switch off and just let your let it flow. emotions kind of be released in that moment. It's true. And when you try and hold back tears, it, 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 is, a, it is a physical holding back of the tears. And uh, to know that these physiological things are actually part and parcel of crying um, should really sort of, it, it not only explains why we cry and what we have the tears for, but it gives you um, license to cry. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. You don't have to, uh, you can say, this is, a, this is serving a purpose, my tears. So um, it's, it's, you know, for men and women, men don't cry nearly as much as women. And tears really help to shift your mood. 
So if you're very sad and you're crying, it it, it does help um, to change your mood uh, a bit. So I found that very interesting, and I and I thought that I would share it with you. I thought it was a really good question that my daughter had. She had a couple other doozies, and uh, <laughs> I'm I'm leaving those uh, for another show. For another show, yeah, because <laughs> I, they, she had me thinking. Like I'm thinking. Well, because I, you know, I fully believe that everything in our body is there for a reason. There's a function, right. and whether it, it goes awry or not, there's something important that this is particularly meant to be doing. So yeah, everything has a purpose. It, it does. And a couple of the other questions she asked me, like I said, I'll leave it for another show. But uh, I actually had to really think hard about it, and I thought that's you know people don't ask the obvious questions. Well, thanks for like sharing that. and yeah. doing the research. <laughs> yeah, it was well. You know what I learned? I, I learned as much as I share. Believe me. We have an awesome guest today. Our guest is Dr. Lori Stevick-Rust, and I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to this interview. Dr. Stevick-Rust has a doctoral degree in psychology. She has worked in the field of clinical health psychology for 28 years, serving as the current medical director for senior services for an acute care facility and a national consultant for dementia services and care to numerous post-acute care organizations. She is the president of the board for the Lake County Council on Aging and the advisory board for the Alzheimer's Association and the Center for Dialysis Care. She is the founder and president for a nonprofit foundation that supports intergenerational programs in senior communities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dr. Steve Rust has been a regular on-air TV consultant and contributor on psychological topics hosted a cable talk show entitled Best of Health TV, and has contributed to Women's World and Fitness Magazines. She is the author of several books, including Greedy for Life and Put on Your Big Girl Shoes, Stepping into Courage, Resilience, and Gratitude. She is the author of Dr. Lori Column that appears in Cleveland Business Connects magazine and the National PS magazine, and is a regular blogger for the Huffington Post and appears on Huff Live. She has been recognized as a woman of achievement by the YWCA and the Professional Advocacy Award by the Consortium Against the Exploitation and Abuse of Seniors. She has been inducted into the KSU Hall of Fame Distinguished Alumni. She volunteers her time advocating for the protection of seniors and mentoring women who have been victims of abuse, exploitation, and violence to help them discover their strength. It's going to be a fascinating, wonderful show. Our learning points today are, among, among many other things, what are natural changes to the brain as we age? How do we cultivate gratitude as we age? And how can we live a life of resiliency through all ages? So please do stay tuned with us. After our short break, we will be back to talk with Dr. Lori Stevig-Rust.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is live today, so feel free to call in to 416-245-1534. We are still taking questions for the next few minutes at the Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And again, if you'd like to email us at us at thhradiomaria.ca, we are happy to take uh, to take in your emails. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Lori. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kathy. It's it's really my pleasure. Oh, I I can't wait to get into the topic. And uh, you're just a woman with so many fascinating, intriguing ideas and understandings and uh, you know, I was looking at your website and I admire so, so much of what you are doing. How did you start focusing in on sort of the geriatric nature of, of your practice? Well, you know, I, I wish I could tell you it was really circumscribed from the beginning, but I, as a health psychologist, and for the listeners who um, may or may not know what a health psychologist is all about, we're the folks that kind of bridge the mind and body connection. So, you know, as a, as a psychologist, certainly focusing on our emotions, our cognition, how we cope, our resilience, how we manage um, our emotional states, and then the physiology of the body. And really, a health psychologist usually works in a health setting. So there's a, a real integration of how does stress impact the cardiovascular system and how does somebody who's going through chronic illness how does that change and affect the brain? And so recognizing that we are a whole integrated being is really what a health psychologist is all about. And so for many years working in the field of health psychology, um, I've really had the opportunity to work with a lot of our seniors because unfortunately, certainly as we age, we are more prone to a lot of illnesses, both um, chronic and acute care injuries. So with that, I was able certainly to um, have the pleasure of working with a lot of seniors. And for anybody who knows my story, um, if they've gone to the website, I had um, a 105-year-old grandmother who was really kind of the, my soul, the, you know, kind of the core of who I am. Um, and she just passed away. But I think because as watching her journey of aging and the amount of wisdom and value and humor and um, perspective that she gave to my generation and to my children's generation, it really developed a much higher level of appreciation for the need to respect people going through the aging process and helping them retain their dignity throughout that journey. So I guess that's my long answer to how I landed at a place of really uh, spending a lot of my time understanding, assessing, treating, managing, protecting, and advocating for our seniors. I don't, I don't know if it's because um, I'm closer to being elderly than I am to being adolescent, um, I see, I see that our elderly are, I think, completely undervalued in society. And I well, think you go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm so sorry. I had a delay here. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as we age, we worry about aging. Nobody really says, yay, this is great. I can hardly wait to get old. You know, it's the thing we dread. It's the thing we worry about. Um, and so I think in many ways we want to put it off to the side, like behind closed doors so we don't have to look at it, so we don't have to see what's coming down the road. My hope is that as we start to do more work with our generations and creating more intergenerational uh, learning opportunities, awareness building, changing the culture of how we look at aging, that we will be able to really fully step into each phase of the aging process 
Because quite frankly, if you look at it from a physiological perspective of just the brain, the brain begins to age, you know, as soon as we're born. And in our 30s and our 40s is when we really have to pay close attention to brain health. So it's not like, okay, aging is for the people who are what, over 65, over 85, over 100. We are aging as we're living. And so I think once we change our way of thinking about that, we can fully embrace what it means to be a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 70-year-old, a 90-year-old in a different way. So you're trying to look at aging as not a passive progression, but something we can take an active part in. Is that what you're getting at, basically? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, when we, when we understand that we have some control and it's not something that's just happening to us, now we certainly know that there are normal changes in aging that happen. You know, right? So any of the viewers who are over, I'm going to say over the age of 50, because somehow that's the way we demarcate things. But over the age of 50, we'll certainly recognize that our stamina is not the same. Um, our, our level of distractibility might be different. Um, so, and this is a place where I think a lot of people will talk about is forgetting a normal part of aging. Like, does everybody who age automatically is going to have some short-term memory problems and be unable to remember things? Is that just normal? And I'm here to say that the answer is no. Our brain is really designed to last as long as our body. And so if we find ourselves struggling with short-term memory loss, meaning losing information in a two-minute, 30-second window of time, we really have to be aggressive at looking at what's causing that. Because there are many things as we age that can cause that that is reversible and treatable. So brain tumors, brain bleeds, um, infections, things like that. So I always, anytime I have a chance to put that plug in that just because you are 84 years old or um, in your 90s and you're starting to have some short-term memory difficulties, I never suggest to families or to the residents or to the patients themselves that they write that off as, well, I'm just getting old and so I'm forgetting and maybe neglecting something that is actually treatable um, and potentially life-saving. So we have to really start thinking about the brain as it is not normal to um, lose information and not remember things. What is normal is that as we age, our brain proportionally shrinks, just like we have changes to the body, we have changes to the brain, and so the brain is a little slower. So if you're finding yourself climbing a flight of stairs and you get up there and you think, okay, wait, what am I doing up here? There's a very good chance it's because you're distracted and you're trying to multitask. And our brain isn't as fast or as tolerant of that as we age. But forgetting that what the steps are even for, like climbing the flight of stairs and not even recognizing your surroundings, very different conversation um, and not a normal part of aging. I'm still in the camp that my mind is so overwhelmed with all little details that the two-minute window that I do forget things is just multitasking or just over. I, I'm still, I, 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 I'm one of those who I will forget. I'm terrible with names, always have mm-hmm. been terrible with names. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, do, I do try and do my best to, to keep up, to read, to this and that. But to know that there is a healthy way of aging and that some memory loss is not, you know, something that we really have to worry about, but there is other aspects that we can take an active part in. Maybe we can start talking about, um, you know, so someone like me who, uh, you know, every now and again, uh, I can't remember what happened three minutes ago or how I got from A to B. What can I do to uh, flex that muscle? Well, that's a great question, Kathy, because I think there are a number of things that we now know about the brain that we didn't used to um, understand. We used to believe that we were born with a certain number of neurons or nerve cells in the brain, and what you have is what you have, and that's it. 
But what recent research has really shown us is that there is a process called neurogenesis, which means the nerves, uh, the neurons and the nerves of the brain can actually rebuild and um, develop new neurons. There's also a component of what we call neuroplasticity, meaning the connecting dendrites from one nerve cell to the next nerve cell can also be rebuilt. And the more that we do that, the more we increase the neuroplasticity or making more neuronal fibers and networks in the brain, we are actually inoculating potentially the brain from diseases like Alzheimer's. So what we're discovering is the stronger and healthier your brain is, that even if you have the pathological findings at the cellular level of Alzheimer's, you may not go on to actually develop the disease if your brain is really strong. So how do we make it strong? Well, there are a couple of really important components. One is we want to pay close attention to our nutrition. So certainly things that are, um, you know, of the Mediterranean diet has been well studied to show that um, ingredients and foods that are um, protect the brain from inflammation, which is really a bad thing for the brain, increases oxygenation and supplies the good nutrients for the brain to actually thrive in an environment that is healthy and rich. So things like blueberries and broccoli and turmeric, um, fatty fishes like that have a lot of the omega-3s and the omega-6s like salmon and trout, um, all really important ingredients to make sure that even if you're not adhering to a strict Mediterranean diet, that you're doing everything that you possibly can to throw those ingredients into your recipes, dumping them into smoothie drinks, any place that you can say at the end of the day that you've done something to add some anti-inflammatory nutritional ingredients into the body will be very good in nurturing the brain. Uh, the other thing is, and, you know, get ready for an eye roll, because whenever every time I read this research, I sort of roll my eyes, but exercise is really, really important because it does allow for that increased oxygenation and allows the neurons to, again, thrive. So when we talk about exercise, it doesn't mean that you have to be in a gym, you don't have to be on the treadmill, you have to be active. And lots and lots of good research that shows us that simply walking and more specifically, walking in green space where you're outdoors um, actually improves the oxygenation and makes your workout even more efficient. And anything that improves the oxygenation is good for the brain. And then two other components. One is about lifelong learning. So when I talked about those neurons uh, regenerating themselves and creating new fibers, we do that by learning something new. You know, you use the word flexing that muscle. If we're doing the same thing over and over and over, the brain gets really lazy. So if you drive the same route to work, those neurons are lighting up, but it's almost like out of our awareness, like you don't have to consciously think about a familiar route, for example. But you try going a different way or trying to learn something new, new neurons have to form to create some new learning. And the more we do that, the stronger the brain becomes. And again, we believe increases our chances to be protective against diseases like Alzheimer's. And then lastly is about social connection. You know, we are certainly, as human beings, meant to be socially connected. You know, there's a reason that putting somebody in isolation is a punishment. And so um, looking at your social life and making sure that you have two components to your social life. One is making sure you're surrounded by people that are your comfort. So the, the friend that you could have lunch with who could almost finish your sentence, 
they're kind of like that emotional hug. But you don't want only to consistently have the same conversations with the same friends. You want to be able to meet new people if you want to improve the health of your brain. So I know that if, for example, Kathy, you and I don't know each other, if we went to lunch, we would be pretty actively engaged in listening and learning, asking questions about one another. Our brains are going to be lit up in a very different way than if we went to lunch with our spouse or our children, somebody who we kind of already know and we sort of almost can tell you where the conversation is going to go. So making sure that you are, yes, surrounded by the people that um, – socially know you very well, but making a concerted effort to get out there and meet new people, have new conversations, so you can create new neuronal connections in the brain. So that's sort of a high summary of the kinds of things that we should be focusing on to improve um, the health of our brain. It's fascinating. In fact, I, I saw a TED Talk about um, people who live the longest, and at the top of the list was this type of socializing, exactly how you've broken it down, not just socializing with people that we're comfortable with, but stopping and talking to the person on the street, then you're, you know, you're walking the dog. And, and uh, it, it's really is, it's fascinating. The, the more uh, I get into this health, uh, this health biz, the more I realize that it starts in the head, that, you know, all the other components are important, but it's the emotional aspect of health that is almost the most important and the, le- the least attended to. So um, fascinating. No question. Now yep. we're going to take yep. a, no a quick break here. And when okay. we come back, what I'd like to do is start focusing on that area of gratitude because um, many of us, many people don't get that opportunity to age. So it is something that uh, those of us who will have that opportunity to do should do so with gratitude. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get back from our break. I'm okay. no I'm no longer a slave to fear. Yes, I am a child of God. Family, oh. 
this. I believe it's going to break down so many walls in this place tonight. Let's see. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here talking with Dr. Laurie Stevick Rust about aging and health and gratitude, aging with health and with gratitude. And um, Dr. Laurie, your books, and you've written several books, have been reviewed by the likes of Larry King from Larry King Live and Madeline Albright. So obviously what you say is meaningful and resonating with many, many people. And um, it's it's to this that I'm so grateful that you're with us today. And a component of aging that um, I find, again, aging is, is an area that is, is under undernourished. But your talk about gratitude and living a life of gratitude, which comes out so so beautifully in your book, Greedy for Life, is something that I think we need to spend some time on. So take it from here and, and give us your vision of what aging with gratitude is. Well, I, you know, I think when we oftentimes, you know, as in science and our common use of language, when we think about gratitude, the common response is people think that it's a acknowledging thanks or um, appreciation for something that's been done for us. And that is true. But in the science world, um, when we really look at how we study gratitude, gratitude becomes a different, um, it, it's taken to a different level. So when we study the, the likes of gratitude, what we're really looking at is that gratitude is the core foundation for everything. You know, so, you know, it's the seeds for resilience. It's the seeds for um, emotional well-being. So when we talk about gratitude in that vein, what we're really talking about is stepping into our current situation, our current moments, if you will, in the present, and being able to fully assess it and absorb it. So I use that, for example, because when we think about what's in our past, you know, if we're looking in the rearview mirror of our life and reviewing it, that's oftentimes where depression, regrets, coulda, shoulda, woulda sit. When we look to the future and we go too far ahead, that's where anxiety can sit. Like, oh my gosh, what if this happens? And oh my gosh, maybe this will happen. Or I'm not going to be able to do that because I'm afraid or I'm going to fail. But if we stand solid in our present, we're less likely to be bogged down by the depression and anxiety if we really listen, take a long, hard look and listen and look at our life. Gratitude seeds usually develop there. And it's what propels us into this positive thinking. People who um, understand and look at gratitude in a, um, and experience it in a full way are much more optimistic thinkers. Just, and that doesn't mean that life has, does, they don't have hardships. I know many people who have had tragedies beyond what we could possibly fathom. But when they have lived a life of gratitude, they've developed a strong, resilient pattern of looking at things. So they have a way of interpreting it, saying to themselves what they're experiencing, how they're going to get through this, building up their coping techniques, and putting it into perspective. 
And most people will say that their true core of gratitude is tied to something spiritual, whether it's religious focused or a simple um, sense of being tied to something in the universe that's bigger or greater than themselves gives us a purpose. And that is one of the seeds, I think, for developing gratitude. So it's being mindfully aware of our moments, evaluating and listening closely to what we're saying to ourselves. If we're leading with the negative thoughts, if we're leading with the pessimism, if we listen and think, oh my gosh, for the last four minutes, all I've been saying to myself is something really negative and um, and, and not very positive about myself or critical about so many other people, you can almost feel your emotional well-being drop versus people who tend to appreciate what's been given to them and and appreciate what's been given to other people and what's happening in their current situation. So I think in many ways for people who say, I really do live a life where despite what's happening to me, I can step right into it and say, but then there's this. And then there's this portion of kindness or this uh, gift that was given to me. So it takes that gratitude, not just for my thank you, how blessed am I, but takes it to a much deeper level of fully integrating um, what's happening, what you're going through with your thoughts, your emotions, and it's tied to your purpose of living. There has to be ways to cultivate gratitude because this isn't something that is in innate in many of us, and especially people who are going through very difficult times. And what what gratitude is requesting is that you're living now and in the present. And uh, from personal experience, that is a very, very hard thing to do. Are there ways to cultivate, like really cultivate this gratitude? You know, it's interesting because um, Martin Seligman, who maybe many people know, is a, a very well-known, famous psychologist who's done a lot of work in positive psychology and around research on optimism and gratitude. And one of the exercises that he puts his students through is, is I still believe, one of the strongest ways for all of us to cultivate uh, gratitude. And what he asked his students to do was to think about somebody in their life who really made a difference and write that, write that person a letter. It could be somebody that was, you know, maybe even still not alive, but write the letter And then if you can find the person to actually go out and read the letter to them. And the letter had to be very personal, not only about, geez, thanks for doing this for me, but what it, what it meant to me, how it changed my way of thinking about myself and what it did for my confidence going forward. And then they had to read it. And so that little experiment, really, they did research around not only did it profoundly change the person who was receiving the letter, maybe a teacher who says, wow, you know, I was just your fourth grade teacher. I had no idea that I had this kind of an impact on you and that you would find me and express it. But it also had a profound effect on the person who was, who was forced to think about gratitude and things that had been done in their life for them and then to express it. And those are the people who then went forward after that experiment and found that they lived a life where they were very mindful of constantly expressing at a deep level things that they recognized that were gifts, either given from somebody or some, or some circumstance, and they had to go back and express that gratitude. It seems that there is something about the expression of that that changes the way that our brain is wired, the way that we think about things in a very positive way. 
So when you say um, it's very hard to do in the moment, and you're absolutely right, because we get caught up in the stress, we get caught up in the what ifs and the oh my gosh, and what, how am I going to do this? And why does this always happen? And I think once we've learned the skill of pausing long enough and quieting our minds and looking at what gifts have been given to us, even if we have to search, like if it was a homework assignment, and right now it looks like there's no gifts, like right now there's nothing good happening in your life, you've got that black cloud. If you were forced to put something to paper, I suspect you would then find that there's many more gifts that you're, you're missing. And having to search for them and then express them is part of what cultivates gratitude. The, the expression of gratitude isn't something that we've come across on the show. Uh, it's more of an internal thing. So this is a, a really interesting point. So it's not just looking inward and being thankful. It's actually going out and letting people know how, gra- how grateful you are. Right. And I think about, you know, when you, when you talk about gratitude, as you say, I think we, we sometimes think about it as a passive, geez, thank you for that, or I'm so grateful that you did that for me. Um, but really Living with gratitude is a conscious choice. We choose to be grateful or we choose to not be grateful. And once we realize it's within our power and our control, the circumstances that that happen to us in our life sometimes are not in our control. Death and illness and financial struggles and emotional relationship issues are sometimes not completely within our control. But the one thing that we know at the end of the day that is in our control is we can choose to be grateful. We can choose to listen closely to the things we're saying to ourselves and turn that into a conscious act. We always do better as human beings when we feel like we have control over something. It's true. Uh, you know, and you're a great medium for this message. And you've, you, you're, you're uh, one of the other books that you've written, uh, Put on Your Big Girl Shoes. It has a theme, uh, another, you know, a, th- a theme that runs through both of these books. And in this book, you're talking about courage. And um, the women that you speak to in this book have had things happen to them that have really shifted their lives. But again, you're asking for gratitude and courage and and all of these things and your book has resonated so strongly with so many people how did you how did you get to the root of this how did you decide to go out and talk about this well you know one of the things that certainly as a psychologist i hear from people all the time is wow i could never be like that person like, you know, I, I, and particularly I focused a lot on women in this, in the book, but I think the themes and the messages applies to men as well. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of women who will look and say, geez, if, you know, I don't know how that person was, had the courage to go and do that or uh, be that successful. Like I couldn't do that within myself. We as women are oftentimes plagued by something called the imposter syndrome. And again, men can experience this as well, but proportionally it seems to hit us women the hardest. And what the imposter syndrome is all about is we walk around believing that it doesn't matter how many awards we have or how many things we've been acknowledged for or all of our strengths, that deep down inside, we are still faking our way through it, faking our way through our success, faking our way through our experiences in life, and that pretty soon we're going to be discovered for the imposter that we really are. You know, I write in the book that Meryl Streep is one in many of her interviews that she talked about believing that pretty soon people are going to figure out that she really doesn't know how to act. (laughs) Now, those of us who are Meryl Streep fans are thinking, are you kidding me? But this is a perfect example of it doesn't matter what accolades we get from the outside. 
It's the disconnect on the inside. And that's where the imposter syndrome has its seeds. So for me, as I was listening to many women that I've worked with over the years saying, gosh, if I could only be like so-and-so, I thought, you know what, I'm going to venture out. And I would imagine that even these famous, um, successful women have had their own internal struggles. And if we could eavesdrop on their internal conversation about how they navigated through their own fears, found the courage to stand up and do the things that they really knew that they were capable of doing. If we could hear how they did that, it might be a nice roadmap for the rest of us. So I set out on a journey and I, I asked people, you know, who do you think, I asked a, in a pilot study, you know, if, if I asked women, who do you find to be a woman that you think would be um, devoid of any kind of anxiety or worries or imposters? That's a really confident woman, successful. And Rachel Maddow's name continued to come up. Um, and, you know, whether or not people liked her politics or not, it was really more about her story of activism and advocacy for people who are marginalized and how she marched into a place that was really a male-dominated as a gay woman. How do, you, how do you step into all of those struggles and all of the criticisms and still be true to who you are and authentic to your own life story? And so I had the privilege of getting to interview Rachel to talk about themes of authenticity and navigating through that. Um, I had the, the, the great pleasure of talking to um, a woman who lost a husband, but not through death, but through a traumatic brain injury. So he's still alive. But how do we navigate when you're saying goodbye, but not really able to say goodbye and you still have children to raise? It raised the whole issue of resilience. How does a woman step into this is my existence now? I can either cave, become negative and depressed and um find unhealthy ways to cope, or I can stand tall in those big girl shoes, find my place of resilience, my ability to cope, and my ability to turn tragedy into something purposeful um, within her life. And so her stories are, are, are in the book guiding us. And then finally, you know, as anybody who's written a book, you know that the journey of writing takes you down paths that maybe you didn't think about. You know, when I set out to write the book, I was focused on you know, Fortune 500 um, CEOs or famous women. Um, I, but what my journey led me to was probably the most profound story in the book was the last remaining Holocaust survivor from Schindler's List. And I had the great pleasure of sitting and interviewing her. And it was in that interview that the real true theme of gratitude rose to the surface. Here's a woman that as you listen to her life story, which was very hard to, to hear, to sit with, to integrate, to certainly write about. But at the core of all of that, she, she remained a very grateful person for her life, for the basics. And in listening to that, it reminded me that she could peel back the layers of all of the negative things that have happened to her to tap into her gratitude for life. And with that, using her life for a purpose. And for her, the purpose was to really teach people about becoming upstanders, not a bystander, but standing up for other people, standing up for things that we see that we don't agree with, as opposed to sitting quiet and allowing ourselves to passively participate. True gratitude in the gift for life for her was about standing up and saying, we all have a shared humanity. And so for me, in all of those stories, what it continued to, 
to reinforce was the research around gratitude and resilience at any stage of our aging process where we realize that these are conscious choices that we have control over. It's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating book and you know through it all the theme of there are two two things that stand out to me too is your is your profound respect for the elderly. I mean this woman was obviously older and uh, you said that this story touched you so deeply and again so this is gratitude permeating everything and I think if if I'm understanding what you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong that it all starts with gratitude. If you don't have gratitude, you can't build on the courage and the resiliency. And um, I just think it's such a profound message that you are are putting out to everybody. And to know that in, in your book, uh, based on your grandmother's life, that I'm assuming that she is one of the people that you would write a letter to of gratitude. Um, if, if, if you could, if you could share with us your feelings about your grandmother, because it's so touching, I think it really will bring home, um, why you value aging and the elderly and why you work so hard at what you do. Ah, Kathy, thank you so much for asking that, that ending question here. Um, particularly since Thursday, well, this Thursday is coming up the the one-year anniversary of her death. So, you know, anybody who's grieving knows the stories about how, you know, we, we sometimes want to put grief over on the side, but that's not where it belongs. It's we, we owe it. You know, when you talked about tears at the opening of this, our tears, our grief, we owe that to the people that we love. So my answer to your question would be, if I were writing a letter to my grandmother, it would be around the theme of the book that you talked about that she and I wrote together which was entitled Greedy for Life. And that title was actually my grandmother's philosophy about living. So anytime, because she lived to 105, she was interviewed by a lot of the media. Anytime she was interviewed, people would say, okay, so what's the secret to a long life? You know, it should start off with some of the basics, which is you eat popcorn every day, you have an (laughs) apple every day, you watch baseball every day. But at the end of the day, it was really about her philosophy. So she would describe Greedy for Life being that she just had a passion to absorb every moment of the life that she had been gifted. And she really saw it that way, that this was a gift to live, to be here, and there has to be a purpose for that. And so for her it was, I am going to absorb every moment that I have breath to absorb. And so for me, if I were writing a letter to her, it would be to thank her for guiding me to my purpose of helping other people reach their own purpose of living. Well, she definitely lives on through you, and it's very evident by all that you do, and it's a, a wonderful story that I hope everybody will take the opportunity to read. I mean, it's, it's so many of your of your uh, works are outstanding, but that's, that's a really resonating one for people. And you have a new uh, work in progress, do you not? I do, actually. We put together a... Um, because my grandmother, uh, she had a heart attack and she w- she lived at 105. Go figure, right? There's some resilience, right? Um, but for the last four days, she died at home. And what she really was able to kind of navigate for us about what she wanted. And her legacy, she really believed, needed to be connections with the generations. She, she was a, a firm believer that we only survive if we pull together and are responsible for one another that whole concept of tribal living. And so we started a foundation called Nana's Tribe, and the mission and the vision of the organization is to bring generations together 
to work on projects and engage in learning experiences with the ultimate goal to be able to move the dial and improve social isolation, loneliness, and to remove bias because we know that there's ageism, there's culturalism, there's you know, cultural bias, there's racism. And in pulling our generations together, we're hoping we're going to be able to attack and advocate away from being bystanders that participate and become upstanders within the generations. So that's the ultimate goal of the, of the foundation, um, and it will be true to her mission in life. Outstanding. Now, can we find information for this on your website, which is uh, www.drlaurie.net, or is there somewhere else that we can go and look for this information? You could do both. You could certainly, there is a link on my website. The foundation's um, website is Nana's Tribe Foundation. How do you spell Nana? How do you spell? It's N-A-N-A with an S, Nana's Tribe, T-R-I-B-E, foundation.org. But again, there's an easy link on my website as well. Perfect. Now, in, in departing, and um, we've covered so much information, do you have any tips to help us out, either with the aging process or just some, some truisms that you, that you would like to share with us? Well, I think if I were going to summarize, because you're, you're absolutely right, Kathy, we've, we've crossed everything from how to keep our brain healthy and then tying it into gratitude and resilience. But for me, having... Um, worked in this field for so long, I find them all interrelated. That certainly people who, the, the tips I would leave for the listeners would be number one is to recognize that anything that is good for our heart, good for our emotions, is good for the brain. And so thinking about taking good care of ourselves with exercise and nutrition, not smoking, social engagement, reducing our isolation, but also paying really close attention to what we're saying to ourselves. We're talking to ourselves all day long. And sometimes it's really not pretty. And so if you pause long enough and you're listening to sentences that start with, oh, my God, and what if, and maybe, and I'm an idiot, really needs to have the pause button. Because not only is it going to affect your emotional well-being and your social relationships, it's really creating the brain that you don't want to have. So, you know, we create our own mind in the way that we think about things. And so you want to make sure that you're treating your thoughts very, very carefully and listening to them really well. Thank you very much for that. Um, our social media will have uh, the website for Dr. Lori Stevick Rust. It's again www.drlori.net, and you will find the link for the link. Oh my goodness, for Nana's Tribe <laughs> Foundation.org. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lori. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. It's been an awesome, awesome show. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on the Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.